Amen. Encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with us to Genesis chapter number 4. Genesis 4. We'll be in about verse 16 through verse 26 in Genesis chapter number 4. After the terrorist attacks on September the 11th, 2001, there was uh, fires at Ground Zero that burned for nearly 100 days, 99 days, up until December 19th, those fires burned and were not extinguished. And one of the firefighters, Tom Manley, said this. He said, you wouldn't begin to imagine how much water was pumped in to ground zero. He said it was like you were creating a giant lake, end quote. That's not the first time water's been used to drown out the sinful hands and hearts of men. Of course, in Genesis 7, we read about how when the thoughts and intentions of the heart were only evil continually, God destroyed the earth with a flood. What brought about that judgment and what brought about that flood? Well, it happened soon after the in the beginning God. In Genesis 1, we're told in the beginning God created. Well, what did God create? God created a sinless world. Somebody say sinless. A sinless world. How do you know God created a sinless world? Well, after God created creation, he looked at it and he said it is very what? Very good. Meaning, guess what? It's without sin. In fact, it was so much without sin that the serpent had to talk Eve into sinning. It's not that Eve has been sinning from the beginning. It's Satan's been sinning from the beginning. And the serpent had to talk Eve into sin. And then we just see sin progress from a spark to a raging fire from the pit of hell. So I want to show you the progression of sin from Genesis 1 to Genesis 4 real quickly. Genesis 1 and 2, we see God created a sinless world. Genesis 3, the serpent talked Eve into sinning. Adam sinned on his own. No one had to talk Adam into sinning. He did it on his own. Then you get to Genesis 4, where God can't talk Cain out of sinning. He tried, but he couldn't. He couldn't talk Cain out of sinning. And then we see Cain's great, great, great grandson, Lamech, he's bragging about, boasting about, celebrating his sin in Genesis 4. And ladies and gentlemen, as we see this progression of sin that God created a sinless world, the serpent talked Eve into sinning. No one had to talk Adam into sinning. God couldn't talk Cain out of sinning. And then Lamech is celebrating his sin. Church, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're living in the days of Lamech. We're living in the days where sin is not just tolerated, and it's not just celebrated. We're on the verge, and we may already be there in some respect, but we're on the verge of living in the days when sin is mandated. Mandated. I mean, think about it. For those of us who stand on the truth, and by the way, your opinion is not truth, and my opinion is not truth, and your preference is not truth, and my preference is not truth. If you expect people to embrace your opinion over the Word of God, then you're claiming that your opinion is more worthy of worship than God's Word and God Himself. This is the only truth. 
And for us who stand on this truth, I don't know if you've noticed it, but we're being pressured to call what the Bible calls false. We're being pressured to call it truth. Let me give you a perfect example of this, a very timely, practical example of this. If you have not yet dealt with this question, if you have children, if you have students, middle school, high schoolers, if you will be dealing with this. My family is already dealing with the question. If you have not, it's coming. And here's the question. What pronoun should I use when referring to my transgender friend? Now, first of all, you need to know we need to befriend everybody. We need to be kind to everybody. We need to befriend everyone, even those in the LGBTQ community. Absolutely, we need to befriend them because for many of them, you're the only Jesus they're ever going to see. So absolutely, we're to befriend them. But that's not the question. Here's the question. What pronoun should I use when referring to my transgender friend? Should we refer to our transgender friends by their preferred pronoun if that preferred pronoun does not represent the gender God made them to be? And the short answer is no, you're not. Now, at the same time, are we to be kind? Yes. Are we to be respectful? Of course. But that kindness and that respect cannot extend to endorsing what the Bible calls false as truth. In the beginning, God created man and woman. It says very clearly in Genesis 1.27, in the beginning, God created a man in his own image. He created them male and female. God chooses your gender. You don't get to pick your gender. God, that's God's job. God does that. He makes you male. He makes you female. And for us to agree with a falsehood that the Bible calls false and claiming it is truth as believers and followers of Christ, we can't do that. We just can't. Now, are we to be loving and respectful? Of course. And let me be the first one to say, I need more grace and mercy than any person walking planet earth. And so do you. But we're getting to the place, are we not? Doesn't it seem like we're getting to the place where God is just about ready to say, I can't even with these people anymore? And that shouldn't surprise us because in Noah's day, he looked at this same earth and he saw the wickedness and the, and, and, and the thoughts and intentions of the heart being evil, only evil continually. And God said, I am sorry that I made man on earth. So it shouldn't surprise us that there's coming a day when God is going to say, enough is enough. So this Sunday, I want to speak to you on the subject, I can't even. I can't even. Now, the phrase, it's an emotional exclamation. It's an emotional exclamation in response to an event or a situation that is amazing. And you're just overwhelmed by it, overjoyed by it, or it's frustrating and you're exasperated by it, or it's disturbing and you're just bothered by it and you just, I can't even. Right? You're speechless, so you say, I can't even. Let me give you an example of, I can't even. Old age, does anybody know what old age is? Brad's hand is yet to go up. <laughs> old age? No. Old age. You might know what old age is. Of course. Yes. So this is an example of I can't even. Old age looks at Tom Brady and says, I can't even with this guy. Right? Because he doesn't age. Okay? It's an emotional exclamation. And when we read Genesis 4 and we begin in verse 16 and we read through 26, 
What just jumps off the page is this emotional exclamation that I just can't even. So let's see what God has for us in his word today. I'm going to read verse 16 through 26 and then we'll unpack it together. So let's start in verse 16. If you're there, say I'm there. Here we go. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Can, can I just say, you, you don't ever want your name associated with going away from the presence of the Lord. It's not a good way to go. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch when he built a city. He, named, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabul. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nahumah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. We pray for the receiving of it and response to it. May it please you and honor you in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Here's our takeaway, sermon in a sentence. It reads this way. The way of Cain is a dead end. The way of Cain is a dead end. It leads to the end of life. It's that wide road that is very popular and very populated that leads only to destruction. The way of Cain is a dead end. And so I want to show you the reason we can say this today, and here's some reasons why. Number one, the way of Cain is a dead end because it leads away from the presence of the Lord. A fascinating situation in Genesis 4 transpires before our very eyes. It's incredible to see what happens here. Now let's give a little context to it. You have Cain and you have Abel. Two brothers, sons of Adam and Eve. They both are worshiping the Lord. Now one of them is just going through the motions, right? Cain. The other one, Abel, is sold out. He's all in for Yahweh. And he's worshiping with a sacrificial, repentant heart while Cain is a very unrepentant, angry, going-through-the-motions kind of worship. 
One pastor said it like this, kind of like the difference between the church in Afghanistan and the church in America. There's a great gulf between the two. Church in Afghanistan, they wrestle with whether to gather in the presence of the Lord to worship at the expense, at the cost, at the risk of being imprisoned or put to death. Here in America, the church in America, we wrestle with whether to gather and worship on Sunday mornings or take our kids to play soccer on Sunday mornings. There's a great divide. There's a great gulf. There's a great chasm between those two. And it's the same for Cain and Abel. Yes, both were worshiping the Lord, but the gulf between the two was great. And we see how this plays out in Genesis chapter 4. Cain became very angry and jealous of his brother and how God smiled upon him. And and every step of the way, God is extending grace to Cain. I want you to see this. This is a very fascinating situation that transpires here And I want to show you how it unfolds. This is one of the darkest scenes in Genesis. As Cain arrogantly comes to worship the Lord in his own way, by his his own rules and going through the motions. And he gets very angry. And in that, God does not move away from the presence of Cain. God moves toward Cain. That, my friends, is grace. And look how many times he does it. Look at this. When Cain is angry, God moves toward him and says, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And then look what happens. Cain is tempted to kill Abel. And when he's tempted to kill Abel, God doesn't move away from Cain. He moves toward Cain. And he tells Cain, hey Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires you, but you must rule over it. God is moving toward him, not away from him. And then when Cain kills Abel, God does not move away from Cain. He moves toward Cain. He asks him, where's your brother? Where's your brother Abel? That is a question of grace. That if you admit, well, he was here, but I killed him. If you're repentant, I will forgive you. It's a question of grace. It's God moving toward him to give him an opportunity to repent. God's not moving away from him. And then Cain lied to him. He said, I don't know where my brother is. I'm not my brother's keeper. And in that moment, God doesn't move away from Cain. He moves toward Cain. Grace, grace, grace. And even then, when Cain is complaining about the punishment God has put on him as Abel's blood is crying out for justice from the ground, crying out for justice. And when God puts the punishment on Cain and marks him and tells him he's going to wonder, he doesn't move away from Cain. He moves toward Cain and he listens to Cain's self-pity, self-righteous plea. This punishment is too great for me. God never moves away from the presence of Cain. He's moving toward Cain. And after all that grace, the Bible tells us that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. How tragic and how sad. You know, God desires no one to perish, no, not one, but that all come to repentance. That's his desire. He's moving towards you today. Just like the repentant thief on the cross who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's moving toward us, not away from us. Today, he's moving towards you by grace. Don't go away from his presence. Open your heart and receive it. And once you, once you belong to Christ, you can't walk away from him. Those who are genuinely Christ cannot walk away. Once you have the Holy Spirit, you can't unhave the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work that way. He dwells within you. He is God in you. 
And one day in heaven, we will be with God. Jonathan Edwards said it like this. This world is all the hell that a true Christian is ever going to endure. Isn't that good news? It's the worst it gets, folks. This earth. At the same time, it's all the heaven that unbelievers shall ever enjoy. That's the way of Cain. It leads to a dead end. Why? Because it goes away from the presence of the Lord. Secondly, it goes away from the paradise of the Lord. Watch this. Cain settles down in this place called Nod. It's east of Eden. He turns his back on God's paradise and goes his own way. So I'm going to make my own paradise. God, I don't need your paradise. I'm going to make my own. He moves away from the presence of the Lord. He moves away from the paradise of God. Let me ask you a question. What does one of the richest men in the world, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon.com, what, what, what does one of the richest people on the planet do with all that money? What's he do? His latest in, investment is he's investing with other investors on a quest to find eternal life. He's investing in a startup company that's going to find eternal life. He's going to take his money and invest in the quest for eternal life. Somebody needs to tell him, it's already been paid in full. It's paid for, and it's got more benefits than Amazon Prime, right? It's paid in full. Now, once you receive that grace and enter into that family of God, then you invest your life in the kingdom, sure. But eternal life's been paid for. The way of Cain leads away from the paradise of God to find your own paradise, to buy your own eternal life, to invest in your own paradise. And that's what Cain's doing, and it always leads to a dead end. Because you're rejecting the only paradise there is. The paradise of God. This encourages me that though we change and change and change and change, God has never once changed. He's the same God in Genesis 4 that He is today. He's the same one that desires, still desires no one to perish but all to come to repentance. The way of Cain church, it's a dead end. It leads away from the paradise of God, away from the presence of God. Number three, it leads away from practicing obedience to the Lord. It leads away from practicing obedience to the Lord. It leads away from obedience, not towards it. I don't know if you've been, you've been in a parking lot and you're trying to find a parking space and you see that parking space way up there that, that seems to be empty. You ever been there? Shout out to the small cars, right? They take up 20% of the parking space. And from a distance, it looks like it's empty, and you pass up 1,800 empty parking spaces to only learn otherwise that it has a little car there. Shout out to the small cars. A small car is a little thing, right? And, and little things are just that. They're little things. But when you're faithful, when you're obedient in the little things, that's a big thing to the Lord. That's a big thing to Him. When you, when you have little acts of obedience, it's a big thing. Children, when you obey your parents, that's a huge thing. Husbands, when you love your wives as Christ loved church, that's huge. When you serve one another, that's huge. When you forgive one another, that's huge. When you love one another, that's huge. It's not small. It's huge when you're faithful in that. And Cain 
the way of Cain, it leads away from practicing obedience to the Lord. Let me give you some prime examples here from Cain and his life. Look back in verse 11, Genesis 4, verse 11. Uh, really, verse 12. He tells Cain, you know, you, you're going to work the ground. It shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. Cain, you're going to wander on this earth. That's what God's word said Cain was going to do. It's God's word to Cain. This is what I have for you, Cain. You'll wander this earth. But then what does Cain do down in verse number 16? He settled in the land of Nod. And what does he do in verse 17? He builds a city. He says, God, I know you told me I'm going to wonder, but I'm going to reject your word. I'm going to disobey your word. I'm going to ignore your word. I'm going to dismiss your word. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to settle right here. I'm going to build a city right here. It's an outright rejection of God's word. That's what the way of Cain leads us to. Rejecting the truth and rejecting God's word. Secondly, what we see just jumps off the page here in outright rebellion is not only this erecting of his own city, which was rejecting God's word, but also we see his great, great, great grandson, Lamech. What is this, five generations removed from Adam when, when Adam and Eve were told, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his what? To his wife. It doesn't read that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wives. Not two, but one. So here, just four or five generations removed from Adam, marriage, the way God designed it and defined it, is thrown out the window. Polygamy enters into the world as Lamech takes not one wife, but two wives. Here's what you need to understand. Here's what the way of Cain leads to. And by the way, we need to know that gender issues and marriage being redefined and redesigned and cancel culture, these are not 21st century inventions. You can go to Numbers 14. You can read how Jacob and, and, and or Caleb and Joshua, that they, are, they are preaching to the people. They have a message for God's people, and God's people don't want to hear it. They don't like what they hear, and the congregation responds with, well, let's stone them to death. Hey, guess what that is? Cancel culture. It's not a 21st century invention. These gender issues are not a 21st century invention. Rejecting God's design for marriage is not a 21st century invention. This goes all the way back to the fall, all the way back to the way of Cain that leads away from the Word of God and obedience to His Word. It leads away from going where God tells us to go. It leads away from saying what God says to say. It leads away from doing what God says to do. It's a dead end. It's a dead end. Number four, it leads away from pursuing life in the Lord. I don't know if you've noticed this. As we look at number four, it leads away from pursuing life in the Lord. But have you ever noticed how those folks who reject God outright don't want to have anything to do with the Lord, don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, don't have anything to do with His Word. They live their own life, they live it their own way, and how they just prosper. You ever notice that? And they're just prospering, prospering. And those who are saints of God, I mean following Jesus and making sacrifices, they suffer 
And those in the world, they're just prospering. You ever notice that? Well, well here's an example. Here's the, the first example of that. Cain's family prospered. I mean, they fathered agriculture. They were the, they were the founders of technology. They were the founders of hedonism, the, the pursuit of pleasure and consumerism was birthed right here from the family, the descendants of Cain. Look at it right here. It says in verse number 20 that Adah bore Jabul. And Jabul was the the father of agriculture. He did something no one had ever done before. He was living in tents and raising up livestock. And In his day, if you wanted a steak, you didn't go to the steakhouse. You went to Jabul's house because he's the only one that had them. He was it. He had, a, he had a monopoly on that market. He was the only one that had it. He's, a, he's the founder of this. And he prospered much. And then you have his brother, one of his brothers, Jubal. He, he played the lyre and the, and the pipe, the arts and music. And, and the pursuit of pleasure is highlighted here. That's the birth of that. And then their other brother, Tubal Cain, was the inventor of everything tech. He forged instruments of bronze and iron. Everything you hold in your hand, this world that you hold in your hand, every social media platform, every techn- technological advancement came from Tubal. And look at the last part of his word, Cain. That's where he came from. Is the fathers of technology and prosperity and power and agriculture and all the cultures, low culture, high culture, pop culture, cancel culture, subcultures. All, all these cultures came out of this family. But I'm telling Culture will never lead to redemption. There's no redemption in culture. Only Christ redeems. The way of the cross redeems, not the way of Cain. And then you have this guy. The great-great-grandson of Cain. Let me tell you. What a guy this guy is. What a catch this guy is. Lamech or Lamech or however you want to say his name. Look at what he says to his wives. Look at this. Verse 23. You wives of Lamech. I don't know about you, but when I go home, I don't look at Tanya and I don't say to her, hey, wife of Sam. I just, I, just, I just don't do that. Maybe you do that. Wife of or husband of. I just, I just don't, I don't speak that way. The arrogance of this guy. I can see him walking around the house beating his chest. Saying, hey, look at me. Hey, you wives of Lamech, hear my voice. I have spoken. And I can see him just walking around the house saying, look, look what I've done. I've killed a man. And, and look at the look at the in the Hebrew. If you look at verse twenty three, the last part of that verse, that word for young man is lad, a boy, bragging about killing a boy. This lad struck me, and I, I've killed him because he wounded me. And then he justifies it in verse twenty four. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy sevenfold. In other words, here's what he's doing: Abel did not strike Cain. Cain killed Abel, though Abel didn't strike him. And Cain was justified seven times. And so here's this illogical logic, 
Lamech says, okay, if that's the case for Cain, if Cain is justified by killing his brother and his brother did not strike him, and he's justified seven times, then I must be justified ten times more than Lamech because this little boy, he struck me and then I killed him. And isn't that what we do? That's exactly what our hearts do. It's exactly what our hearts apart from Christ do. Our measuring stick are other people. and their sin. Well, mine, mine is surely not as bad as his sin or her sin. And you mean, they got away with this. Certainly I can get away with that. Or they got away with that. Certainly I can get away with this. And here comes this one named Jesus. And you know what Jesus did with this 7 times 70? He flipped it completely upside down. Peter, in a conversation with Jesus, said, Jesus, should I forgive my brother seven times? He took what the Pharisees would do three times and more than doubled it. He said, seven times? How about that, Lord? Jesus said, no, not seven times. I, I tell you, the Lord said, as many as seven times seven or 70 times seven. Ten times as much. In other words, Jesus is saying forgiveness is unlimited. There's no limit to forgiveness. He takes this way of Cain and he flips it. Did Jesus actually practice what he preached? Well, on the cross of Calvary, what did he say to his father? Father, destroy them. Or did he say, Father, forgive them? Father, destroy them for they know what they do. Or did he say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Yeah, he practiced what he preached. He took this illogical, this way of Cain that only leads to death and only leads to destruction and is only a dead end. And Jesus comes along and he redeems it. He takes this seven times 70 and he gospelizes it. He says, oh no, we don't get revenge seven times seven. We forgive 70 times seven. And we see this way of Cain is leading down this populated and popular path of destruction and death. And it's a dead end. But here's Christ. Here's Christ. There's hope. There's hope. Yeah, this family of Cain, the descendants of Cain, they were consumed by the monster of more. They wanted more popularity. They wanted more prosperity. They wanted more power. They wanted more pleasure. They, wanted more. they didn't want one wife. They wanted two. They always want more. That's what this world offers to us. All this world offers to us is an appetite for more that's never satisfied. So here's the last way we know the way of Cain is a dead end. Number five, it leads away from the proclamation of the Lord. Here we have happening here at the end of Genesis 4 and the beginning of Genesis 5, hope. Hope. There's another offspring. Adam and Eve have another child. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. These are the Sethites. We've seen the Cainites. The descendants of Cain, these are the Sethites, the descendants of Seth. And she says, God has given me another offspring. The word there is seed, another seed. In other words, take Genesis 3.15 and apply it right here. That God told the serpent, I'll put enmity between your offspring and, and the woman's offspring. And he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. That's talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. And Seth is the line of Christ. 
Seth goes all the way to Noah. Guess whose family, the only family that survived on the ark, was Noah's family. This is the hope we have in Christ. This is the line we're looking for. This is the way of the cross, not the way of Cain. I can tell you this today, church. In the midst of all the earthquakes and in the midst of all the tornadoes and all the hurricanes and all the variants and all the terrorism and everything that's falling apart all around us, I can stand here and tell you today that our God is sovereign. Our sins are forgiven. Our Savior is alive. Our future is secure. And our Lord is returning. So why do we wallow around in self-pity? We should be the most joyful people on planet earth. We should be walking around rejoicing in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Where is our joy? Why are we moping around? We ought to be as joyful as we all felt on those Fridays in the classroom when the teacher rolled this puppy into the room. This is how joyful we ought to be. Some of y'all know what this is. Some of you don't. That's a VCR under that television. And when that thing rolled in on a Friday, you knew what was about to go down. It was a joy-filled day. And we ought to be joyful because we know what's about to go down. We have the script. And as awful as it looks and as terrible as it seems, good God Almighty, we know the end. And Jesus is King. And He's ruling and reigning. And we know this. And there's a way for us. And it's not the way of Cain. Let's reject the way of Cain and let's go the way of the cross. Why should I go the way of the cross? I want to show you this in the last part of this chapter. Look at this. So here's the new seed. It's Seth. And I want you to see what it says about Seth. This new birth, this new book, this new genealogy. By the way, I don't know about you, but I love genealogies. I know as we're journaling through the Word this year, we skipped Genesis 5. We went from Genesis 1 to 4 and then went to 6 and 7. And I know we skipped Genesis 5, but I love Genesis 5. I love this genealogy from from Adam to Noah. Because of two words. Somebody say two. Say this word, lived and died. Lived, died. Look at this. Check out verse number 6. When Seth had lived, this is chapter 5, verse 6. When Seth had lived, somebody say lived. 105 years he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, somebody say lived. See, there's a difference in the line of Cain and the line of Seth. There's a difference in the Cainites and the Sethites. The Sethites lived. They lived. We're told over and over again, multiple times through this genealogy, that they lived. Meaning they had true life, not a lifestyle, not a lifestyle of prosperity and a lifestyle of pleasure and a lifestyle of technology. No, church, they lived. They had life. And then we're told they died. Somebody say died. Each one of them that died, we're told they died. Every one of them. You can read through the genealogy. Every time. The end of each of their sections is, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. What does that mean? 
We don't see that with Cain and his descendants. You don't read that in Genesis 4. You don't see they lived and they died. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Heaven is interested in the death of every single follower of Jesus Christ. When a saint enters heaven, there's a jubilee day in heaven. Meaning every day probably in heaven is a jubilee day. Why? Because the saint is coming home. And heaven recognizes and is interested and takes note when a saint of God dies. Why? Because your name is written in heaven. And, and, and the Canaanites, the, the, the Canaanites name, they're not written in heaven. In fact, in Psalm, it's very interesting. You know, uh, Cain named the property, the land, after Enoch, after his son. And in Psalm 49, it says, Their graves are their homes, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Their names are not written in heaven, they're written on earth. I don't want my name written on earth, I want it written in heaven. How about you? Why? Because heaven takes notice when a saint of God dies, and when a saint of God lives, and when a saint of God lives, and when a saint of God dies, heaven takes notice. And note, here's what this generate, this line, the Sethites were known for this. They called upon the name of the Lord. Did they work? Of course they worked. Did they have families? Of course they had families. But they were known for calling upon the name of the Lord, for proclaiming the name of the Lord, for making God's name known. You know, one thing I've appreciated about yesterday all over social media, you had people giving all the heroes credit, absolutely, amen to that, all kind of pictures and videos. And... But one thing I really appreciate about yesterday on the 20th anniversary of September 11th was the, the where were you stories. Somebody would post, where were you on September 11, 2001? And people would share where they were, share their stories. And that encouraged me. As a part of the church, it encourages me. It, it, it has a strong lesson for evangelism and a strong lesson for discipleship and a strong lesson for the church today that everyone has a story and everyone wants to share their story and everyone wants to hear stories. We have the greatest story. We have the greatest one. So let's share it. Not the way of Cain, but the way of the cross. Not the way that leads to, to death. That's a dead end, but the way of the cross is life without end. Let's make that known. Father, we love you. We thank you for.